Uh, for those of you who are not at the lunch, let me put in a word for the World Affairs Council. It is an organization that um, helps create information, education, uh, and opportunities in the area of world affairs. And uh, as I look at it, there are cities around the country, and I think that have world affairs councils that are much larger than ours. And we like to see ours grow. I think that Nashville is a great city, and a great city would have a, a strong world affairs council. And we, we, we have one, but we'd like it to be stronger. So I would encourage you to join. Uh, we offer a range of services, including um, speakers and, and in, in living form, but also on, on Zoom and on the line. And online, we offer educational programs for high school students, uh, and we offer a, a weekly uh, quiz that you could take um, called WorldQuest. But today, um, I'm here to present this panel that will speak about cyber threats across the spectrum. Um, the moderator of the panel will be Congressman Jim Cooper, who has represented the Tennessee's 5th Congressional District since 2003. And this must be a uh, election day that uh, either you're loving it, Jim, or you're hating it, or I don't know, you might loving have been it. loving it, all right. And um, he's a member of the House Armed Services Committee, serves as chairman of the Subcommittee on Strategic Forces, and is a member of the Intelligence, Emerging Threats, and uh, Capabilities Subcommittee. He's been an outspoken advocate of the federal government during much, uh, doing much to deter, identify, and remedy cyber attacks on government bodies, uh, businesses, and private individuals. I would also add that Congressman Cooper's reputation as a representative that stays above the vitriol of uh, today's politics is evidenced by the recent column in the New York Times describing him as the House conscience, a lonely voice for civility in this ugly era. Admiral Mike Rogers retired from the Navy in 2018 after rising to the rank of four-star general. He culminated his career with a four-plus year stint serving simultaneously as a commander, the U.S. Cyber Command and Director of National Security Agency. In those roles, he worked extensively with the leadership of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, and the U.S. intelligence community, as well as their international counterparts uh, to uh, in the conduct of cyber intelligence activity across the globe. He also assisted in the development of national and international policy with respect to cyber intelligence and technology, including extensive work with corporate leadership in finance, IT, telecommunications, and technology services. He currently works as a senior advisor for the Brunswick Group in the area of cybersecurity, privacy, geopolitics, technology, intelligence, as well as crisis management and the challenges of leading large organizations in a democratic society in the digital age. Paul Connolly is the chief security officer and leads the programs for cybersecurity, privacy, information governance, and physical security for HCA Healthcare, one of the nation's leading providers of healthcare services. HCA Healthcare serves more than 35 million patient encounters per year. Mr. Connolly started as an information security analysis at the National Security, uh, Secure, security Agency in 1984 and spent nine years as the information security officer at the White House and six years as a partner leading an information security audit and consulting group at PricewaterhouseCoopers. 
He has led HCA's program since 2002. Mr. Connolly has been recognized throughout his career with various awards, including Private Sector Information Security Executive of the Year Award for North America. But perhaps his most meaningful accolade is the fact that 32 members of his team have been selected as Chief Information Security Officers at other organizations. Curtis Klan is the Chief Information Security Officer for the state of Tennessee working with all the state agencies to protect the data that is received from Tennessee citizens. Mr. Klan worked for the, uh, worked his way up the information technology ranks uh, through positions at Fort Knox and Fort Campbell, and finally the state of Tennessee. During his 25 year career at the state, he has held multiple key positions in information technology, including network engineer, manager of data center operations, director of network services. In 2015, Mr. Klan was named Chief Information Security Officer for the state. In 2021, he was named the Security Leader of the Year by the Greater National Technology Council. Dr. Brendan Prinz is a professor of political science at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, with a Global Security Fellow at the um, Howard Baker Center for Public Policy. He received his PhD from Michigan State University and has been at Tennessee for the past 15 years. He currently serves as a lead editor of International Studies Quarterly. He is one of the preeminent experts on maritime piracy and has worked closely with the Department of Defense in studying the causes and effective ways to deter and defend. His other research interests include political violence, war, um, and, war and political violence, war and militarized conflict, terrorism, and most recently, cyber disinformation threats. Dr. Prinz has been a prolific writer of books and articles on these topics. Ms. Casey Santos is the Chief Information Officer at Assurian, which is headquartered here in Nashville, and a global provider of protection, repair, installation, and expert support services for much of the technology in our lives, including smartphones and smart home devices. Prior to that, she was um, Senior Vice President, Head of Business Processes, Innovation, Workflow, and Automation at Alliance Bernstein. She has, pre she has previous experience as CIO of uh, General Atlantic and as Director of Information Technology at McKinsey & Company. She started her career at NASA, supporting over 20 space shuttle, shuttle missions. Jim? Uh, Carl, I appreciate you're doing the heavy lifting of introducing everybody. I appreciate even more your service as a great mayor of the city of Nashville. And thank you for leading the World Affairs Council. This is an extremely important organization for the future of Nashville and for the whole country. So I hope y'all will pay attention and join and support uh, the efforts. We have an outstanding panel. It's a real privilege for Nashville to have Admiral Rogers in town. His brain is amazing. His service is even more amazing. Uh, we heard a wonderful talk at lunch and I look forward to exploring that. But one of the Admiral's main points was that hackers keep on getting away with it. Repeated hacks, same targets, same break-ins. We don't seem to be learning individuals. We don't seem to be learning organizations. And that drives the CIOs crazy because people still use the password, password or one, two, three, or don't change it for years. And like, they are so far from two-factor authentication, and it seems like light years away. So I have found in my 40-year career in politics 
that the best way to reach people is to tell a story. Um, the shortest story you can tell is a metaphor. But I put it this way, you know, tell me a fact and I try to memorize it. Tell me the truth and I may believe it. But tell me a story and I will carry it in my heart forever. So what's the best metaphor for cyber? How about burglary? Now, everyone is worried about being burgled. Nobody wants to be robbed at home or in your car. But we all have burglar alarms. We don't really worry about it that much. But still, if it does happen, we not only lose some good stuff, we feel terribly violated. That's what it's like when you've been successfully hacked. Okay, but see, that's just level one. Level two is when hackers like do every home in the neighborhood or in the city or in the country, and they do it all at the same time. And maybe in broad daylight. Like that's even more violative. So why do we allow that to happen? Because we're stupid and naive. Okay, that's just level two. Level three is what if the burglar could not only take your stuff, like take you? or a loved one, ruin your career, ruin your life, ruin your country. That's really burglary on steroids. And that happens. The entire country of Estonia was taken down years ago by the Russians. That's still possible today for larger countries. Okay, that's just level three. How about level four? How about if the uh, hackers figure out a way to burgle your brain. Because disinformation is way more powerful than we give it credit for. It's not just a funny meme. Way back in 2016, there was a Tennessee Twitter page titled TN underscore GOP, and it had 100,000 followers. And it was revealed in the Mueller report that all it was was a Russian bot. And all the site did was repeat racist memes. But that was sufficiently appealing to 100,000 Tennesseans. That alone can swing an election. So this doesn't alter your DNA yet, but it can rewire your brain. So when you think about hacking, burglary, think about the different levels. This is staggeringly violative. And we as a nation are still in our infancy. We as individuals are still letting our guard down all the time. So why don't we kick off the Admiral and his modesty did not want to be called on first. Uh, I was gonna call on our wonderful private sector panel. And we are blessed here in Nashville, not only to be a hot city, but to have some of the best cyber people in town who guide their companies and hopefully us to better behavior. So why don't we start with Dr. Brandon Prince. Um, it's my understanding that disinformation campaigns are a different kind of a cyber attack uh, that you have studied. Uh, do you see these campaigns becoming even more prolific in the future? And what can governments do about that? All right, this, does this work? Mm -hmm. Thanks very much, I appreciate the introduction. Uh, and the question. Um, so, uh, so Admiral Rogers, um, spoke at the luncheon about threats to 
information within our networks. Um, so espionage type, type actions, and, um, it, it, stealing, burglaring of information, without sharing that information, exposing that information to others. Um, obviously, secure information like final national security agreement, a, a core threat that, that the NSA um, deals with. Uh, so there's another type of threat uh, that was noted as well, which is this disinformation threat, right? That is perhaps even more critical. And so at, at, the, at the University of Tennessee, we had recently a cluster hire of faculty. And the cluster hire was focused on cybersecurity. And much of it was in, uh, was in computer science and engineering. And it was focused on how do we better protect our system from, from burdens. Um, so kind of standard uh, cybersecurity type stuff. But a, a core component of the cluster hire was also focused on social sciences and behavior science, behavioral science. And that is um, trying to understand who might be trying to uh, obtain access to these systems, but also who are the actors that are trying to spread information that might harm our democracy. And so political scientists are concerned about the strength of democracy. And, you know, there was, um, so I think we've, I grew up, uh, but, but, you know, the internet, you know, I've, I've lived through the kind of creation of the internet from the beginning to where we are now. And, you know, I can recall this utopian dream that this was going to be somehow liberating um, for, um, well, for lots of things, for democracy, for human rights, right, individual freedoms. I mean, it was going to be the way in which we're going to spread democracy. And it, so it, it was this belief that there was, this was a way of sharing and spreading information in, in a positive way. Um, and so in 2010, there's this journal called the Journal of Democracy, um, and they published an article that was called Liberation Technology. So the article obviously had this view of, uh, of the internet as it was going to, again, liberate us. You can read that from like Eric Spring. Right, you're going to spread information. You're going to weaken authoritarian governments. You're going to spread democracy. You're going to free people through these technologies. Only seven years later, there was another article published in the same journal, right? Uh, journal of Democracy that was titled um, uh, "Can Democracy Survive the Internet?" Right. So we went from 2010. This was the solution, right, to authoritarianism, totalitarianism. Um, it was going to spread freedom, it was going to spread democracy to this belief now that maybe this is not <laughs> what we thought it was going to be. Um, you know, it, it also interesting to compare it to, you know, previous kind of efforts to understand the behavioral implications of propaganda and disinformation or information warfare, right? So there, there was, interestingly enough, um, a study that was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation after World War II that was trying to understand how um, attitudes and beliefs and behaviors would be affected by um, by radio, right? How would how would mass media and the spread of information through the radio affect how people behave, what they believed? And so there was great concern among political scientists that you might spread propaganda that would influence the beliefs and actions of individuals, particularly in the United States, right? And this was. This was this study was done at the same time as Gabriel Allman's work. He wrote a book on the appeals of communism, right? And so there was this fear after World War II that communism was doing a better job than the United States and democracy and capitalism in spreading the positive views of what it was. 
and it was reaching out to people across the globe uh, and trying to sell this this image of this uh, of this political and economic system. And it was doing a heck of a job, right? And so the United States government got quite concerned about how effective um, this messaging was from uh, the Soviet Union, from the Congress government. And of course, at the same time, we get things like Voice of America, Europe, Voice of Liberty, right? Which were designed to counter the messaging of, um, of the Soviet Union, right? Um, now, interestingly enough, you know, when it comes to kind of online communication, you know, we've, we've begun to find out that, um, that how people communicate online tends to be somewhat different than how they communicate face-to-face, right? And so you, know, you see um, um, greater incivility, you see more, more polarization. Um, and even, even when people have diverse social networks, they tend to gravitate towards extreme opinions um, and tend to share information that tends to be ideologically polarized, right? Um, Dr. Then, Dr. Prince, yeah. we have a whole panel here. Right. We have to have them participate too. Have? Uh, you're over oh, right oh, now. Oh, we'll return to you if, when we can. Okay, one more thing I'll, I'll, I'll end. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can continue this um, uh, after uh, the other guests have spoke as well, obviously not because that's all you do most of the time, which is speak in use of this in lectures. Um, we can speak a little bit about it during, during question and answer about kind of foreign influence efforts that the Russians and the Iranians have had and how they target the United States and, and, and opinions of Americans, try to spread the information to Americans and that polarizes the electorate and, and continues to discord and, um, and partisanship. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. Uh, we now have Casey Santos she has real experience in the real world, working for one of the more amazing companies in the world. It happens to be headquartered here, which we're very proud of. It's called Assurian, but it is an international, totally amazing company. And if you have a cell phone, as we all do, and by the way, I just logged into the Wi-Fi network here. I hope it's secure at Belmont. We can trust it. <laughs> I have my doubts, <laughs> but uh, Casey knows what she's talking about. Casey? Yeah, I think um, so the benefit of hearing the Admiral earlier, but I think there's a few things I would just say about the private sector and how we think about it. Um, and I'll tell a quick story. Um, when I started my career at NASA, the idea of cyber, I always myself too on the internet, the internet was really not a thing yet. We weren't sure if it was gonna be a big thing. And when you think about the connectivity that came with the internet, social media, cloud, you know, those were new challenges for us. So I think what's interesting for the private sector is the game has been changing for us, and it took us a while to figure it out, and we're still figuring it out. So journeying stories. Um, one is we used to just set up a fortress and say, okay, I keep all my servers down the hall in the data center, and I put walls around it, and no one can get in. I'll put these things up called firewalls, which will stop everything, and the world will be fine. Well, when you start going to the cloud, and you start doing the internet, and you start doing all those other things, your walls get, you don't have any walls. Right? Everything is spread out and distributed. And when you go mobile and when you make people work at home, that also creates a very broad set of walls to, to try to contain. So we've had to change our mindset to support that. And so we start now thinking about um, how do we think about identity and understanding who somebody is? And we don't trust, we verify uh, anybody that's coming in and accessing our information. Um, and I think that is a really important change. And we also are always thinking about not just protecting, 
but how do we respond? Because there, this is a bit of a, a lot of people have already heard this, but there are two types of CIOs, the ones that have been hacked and the ones that have been hacked and they don't know it, right? So we all are going to get hacked at some point. How do we manage and respond and how do we make sure we're back up and running? And this was a hard thing in the finance industry in particular, when you've got small companies that are running hundreds of billions of dollars of assets and they don't understand the risk for themselves. And so I think people are now starting to get that and investing, um, but it is a very lonely thing to do inside your own little world in small, um, you know, as a company. And if we think about how we partner across companies, across industries, and, and with partnering with the government, how do we do that? Because this is a big enough war that it's hard. And then I'll leave one final thing that I, again, this is kind of piggybacking upon what um, the Admiral said around what the government challenges are, because we have similar ones. We have to create a culture all across our entire organization to be fighting against this. If you have coders that don't understand the importance of, of, of security measures, they're gonna code things that are gonna have vulnerabilities and how do we manage that? And then how do we make sure we're thinking about the business risk when we do it? So there's a lot to unpack there. I know we have time for a minute, so I will let uh, Paul take. Thank you for being so considerate. Uh, next, we have Paul Conley. He's with HCA. And every Belmont student should know HCA because I think half your buildings here are dedicated for one HCA leader or another. It has uh, parented more companies uh, than any other company, probably in the South, maybe in the whole country. It's just astonishing how prolific uh, HCA people have been terms of entrepreneurship. So uh, Paul is probably especially versed in the very sensitive issue of data privacy because healthcare data has been among the most uh, private things that we've had in America. So Paul? Hmm? Yes, it's definitely a, a unique challenge uh, specific into healthcare. We are one of those critical infrastructures that has landed in the crosshairs of these cyber attacks. And um, we, we have kind of a, a perfect storm of risk. We, we have highly sensitive personal data, healthcare data. We also have sensitive, very valuable research and, and uh, intellectual property. So, so a high target value if you're a bad guy. Uh, we have very complex environments. If you've been to the physician, uh, your physician office or been to a hospital recently, you see it's technology everywhere. Uh, we have a lot of people involved and we depend a lot on a lot of partners. So, so it's very networked, a lot of third parties involved, a lot of relationships with, with vendors and, and developers of products. And, and then at the end of the day, our operations are critical. A, a hospital doesn't close down at five o'clock and reopen at eight the next morning. We have to be there 24 by seven to support our communities. So you take all those factors and it's, we become a very attractive target for, for a, a cyber criminal, whether you're trying to steal data, whether you're looking for leverage for some sort of financial gain, or you just want to create chaos. Healthcare is unfortunately a, a good target. Um, there's a great opportunity for significant leverage there. So, um, and that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is that technology and data is the, you know, the super sauce of healthcare going forward. There are so many brilliant things happening in how we care for our people that we have to enable that to happen. So, so the challenge for, for folks like us is, is how do we do that? How do we achieve those goals, enact those brilliant ideas that people are coming up with? 
but do it in a way that that we're protecting the farm, so to speak. So just mentioned the keyword, which I, I believe in as well. I mean, you can do everything in the world with technology. If you don't have the right culture, you don't have the right buy-in, you're lost when it comes to cybersecurity. And there's a whole bunch of factors that go into that, starting at the, the tone set at the top, the buy-in, the educating of the people on your team, all the colleagues. And, and one big thing that we do is you know, we, we do exercises all the time at different types of events, different types of groups that you hear maybe if you're in a hospital. We've, we've added cyber to that list. We, we do practice scenarios of you know, red team tests and how are we going to respond if this happens. And the whole idea is prepare our people so that we can take advantage of the great opportunity of technology and data, uh, but do it in a way that, that keeps us up and operating way that our patients can trust. Thank you. Next, we have Curtis Klan, and he's the CIO for the whole state of Tennessee, which is, um, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, well, there has not been a coup attempt. <laughs> I, know, I know. I'm sure one day you're about to be, but only when your boss chooses to retire. <laughs> so, um, Managing the whole state of Tennessee is a very tough thing. Uh, this is more of a legal point than a tech point, but um, we live in the United States of America. And under our constitution, the states have the real power. And that makes us like the Balkans because 50 states go in 50 different directions. And that's very confusing. But um, the gentleman from Tennessee is going to unravel that for us. <laughs> Yeah, no pressure at all. Thank you. And I want to talk about some of the challenges that we, we face as, uh, as a government entity. First of all, thank you for the introduction earlier. Uh, I'm very passionate about cybersecurity and, it, and they, at work, they really don't call me Curtis. They call me Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Some of you might get that. <laughs> anyway, um, so we're very similar as far as what we have to deal with that the private sector has to as well, such as ransomware and some of those other attacks. But what makes us a, a unique is the fact that we are a government entity. So we have all the goods of all the citizens when it comes to all types of data. I mean, we've got every form of federally regulated data you can imagine. So we have to protect that data, but we're also specifically targeted because of that. Um, what we see quite often are hacktivist groups trying to attempt to disrupt government. Um, actually, it's happening as we speak. There's a group by the name of KillNet that is going around and disrupting multiple states and multiple government entities as we speak today. Fortunately, at the state of Tennessee, we learned our lesson back in 2015 uh, when we got hit by a hacktivist group by, by the name of Viking Doom 2015. Uh, they hit us once and we put in an emergency purchase order and got some distributed amount of service protection and then they hit us about seven other times after it was mentioned on the news that we did a decent job. <laughs> so, so sometimes good news isn't always something that you, you necessarily want to promote. Uh, so it made us a little bit more of a target. Fortunately, we were in better shape at that time. Um, we're also seeing quite a bit of new variants of Emotet hitting us right now. Um, again, fortunately, we've got really secure uh, email gateways preventing those from getting into our network. So if you don't have a good secure email gateway solution, I highly recommend you do so. Um, another thing that a lot of states are dealing with today is, uh, or has been dealing with in the past years, is really fraudulent unemployment insurance claims. Um, that's been massive across the, the entire 
spectrum of, of the United States. Uh, definitely wanted to mention that. And of course, we can't forget today. Today's election day. So uh, we're on high alert. Um, this is different. Disinformation is critical, right? So if someone can go in and they can change, not necessarily the results of the election, but how it's reported and what's being reported, that could potentially impact you know, you know, the results of the election as well. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. And now for the star of the show, Admiral Rogers. Don't say um, that, sir. I hope you realize in the audience, and many Americans don't realize this, how many intelligence agencies does America have? 17. No, it's now 18 with the Space Force. Yeah. But that's hundreds of thousands of people trying to protect us and to do so either in a clandestine or covert way. And Admiral Rogers was head of the most important of all the 18, the NSA. It is a staggeringly influential organization, and we need it to be that influential. It's an amazing thing. Admiral Rogers. Oh, thanks, sir. So um, first, let me reinforce uh, two points that have already been made, but I think they're really important. I literally had this conversation with two different presidents where I said, look, when it comes to cybersecurity, we cannot spend our way through this challenge. And there is no one single technology that's going to make this go away. And if you want to figure out what's going to have the greatest impact, my argument to them was you change culture, you create long-term sustainable approaches. You change behavior, you generally get short-term effects. And then they change over time because most people, quite frankly, when their perception is the challenges pass, they tend to change their behavior back to the way it was. They said, look, if you change culture, you get long-term sustainable. I think that's very important. The other thing, I, other point I'd make about healthware, in addition to data, devices, devices, devices. Think about what we are creating that we are embedding in the human body that has remote accessibility for data and control. Pacemakers, insulin, I mean, across the spectrum, we are automating and remotely accessing the data associated with that functionality. And the ability of someone to manipulate that, change the distribution of heart rhythm, dispensing of insulin, for example. I, you know, we always talked about the data element, but I'll be honest and tell you, the thing that always scared me the most in the health sector was devices, 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 particularly those embedded in people. Um, I, I thought I'd just focus real quickly on kind of the broad threats out there. So nation states tend to get the most priority and the nation states we pay the most attention to in no particular order, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, they all view cyber slightly differently. One of the things that makes the Russians interesting is probably more so than the other four. They really think about cyber as a component of a broader information and disinformation effort. It's a historic specialty for the Russians, one that they have spent decades well before the internet ever came along. But they very quickly saw the, what social media and digital connectivity brought to their ability to sow discord and spread disinformation. You saw that in the 2016 presidential election and they've kept it up ever since. China's interesting because they tend to view cyber as a tool to steal intellectual property for the purposes of then sharing that with the private sector 
and thus creating economic and national security advantage. They tend to identify and focus on key technologies, key intellectual properties. They will use the capabilities of the state, People's Liberation Army, the Ministry of State Security. They'll use those capabilities to penetrate networks where they know interesting research is being done in the academic sector, corporate intellectual property. They'll steal it and then quite frankly, they'll share it with their own private sector to give them advantages, whether it's saving up, you know, potentially billions of dollars in R&D decades of time. Um, that's what tends to make them unique. The, the Iranians, I would highlight, they're the most, they're the one nation aside from North Korea one time that has used cyber destructively. They have done multiple destructive attacks in Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Israel, and one time in the United States. Um, North Korea has done it once against Sony in November of 2014. So the, the key takeaway there is all have a slightly different view of its importance, but all are heavily invested in it. And they are all increasing their level of investment because they believe cyber offers strategic advantage for them. While we focus on the nation state, for the majority of us as citizens, as well as the companies that we're a part of, to include government, as you've heard, the criminal actor is the biggest in day to day. Ransomware probably being the most visible component of the criminal dynamic. Depending on what source you want to use, the last thing I saw said ransomware payments on a global basis in 2022 at about $1.5 trillion. Folks, that's bigger than the GDP of some, some countries in the world. And that at current rates will be approaching $5 trillion by the end of the decade. $5 trillion is more than multiple countries. I mean, this is huge business. The downside for us is that money is so significant, criminals are incentivized to continue this. So I don't see this ending anytime soon. This is not a short-term challenge that I think, whether it's a nation state or a criminal actor, is going to go away anytime soon. So hope cannot be a strategy for us. Let's hope this goes away. Let's hope criminals in the nation states of the world decide that there's something else that offers them return. I just don't see that happening. So we have to build an approach that works both against the objectives of a nation state and the objectives of a criminal. And they're very different. Criminals all are about maximizing return on investment and generating as much revenue as they can and doing it with minimal risk. They don't wanna get caught. They don't wanna get extradited. They don't wanna go to jail. Um, nation states are very different, but they look forward to the broader dialogue we're gonna have. If any panelists would like to ask another panelist a question, uh, we could entertain that now. Otherwise, we're about to go to uh, audience questions. Is there any urgent panel question to another panel member? Then why don't we open it up to questions from the floor? Who would like to go first? It always takes that really brave, unembarrassed person. Yes, sir, in the back with the beard. And I'll repeat the question so everybody else can hear it. Do I have a funny story about an innocent employee who went to death? Nothing that I'm going to share with this audience. <laughs> no, it's so what it points out, it was an interesting cultural journey when NSA, which arguably used to stand for no such agency, we were very proud of the fact that while we were the largest element in the US intelligence community, 
We prided ourselves on we have it among the lowest profiles. We just historically did not talk about what we did. We didn't interact with the public much, which was not a good thing. In, in hindsight, we should have been a little bit more interactive with the nation we served. But culturally, as we were going through this journey of, okay, we got to change the culture. We have to be willing to be a bit more open with the society we serve. The, the challenges of where should we go and how should we interact? And I can remember the debates about should we go to DEF CON or not, which is a large commercial um, convention uh, of hackers, if you will, simplistically. is more than that, but simplistically. And making the decision, so should NSA go out to, out to a hacking community? And we're going, well, we do hack. Now, we hack foreign systems for national security purposes, but that is one of the things that we do. So it was an interesting culture dynamic. Who else has a question you'd like to bring up? Yes, sir. The gentleman right there. So the, the simplest and easiest one to deploy is security awareness training for all your employees. Uh, I think that's the easy, the easiest and the simplest. Uh, I think also there's a lot of things you can do that don't cost much money other than time and effort, and that is really incident response tabletops, disaster recovery exercises, all those exercises, creating those policies and procedures to make sure that everyone knows who does what, when, where, how, and why. Uh, I think those are the easiest and simplest. Um, Multi-factor authentication isn't that expensive. Um, it's embedded a lot of times within your, you know, Microsoft license, it's depending on how high license you have, uh, and it's simple to do, uh, but it, it also gives you, uh, to me, makes me feel a lot better because I totally believe that passwords are broken. <laughs> I, I have one more thing to add. Right now, we have so many tools and so much data thrown at us trying to solve the problem, and so the biggest, I think, a great investment is something that helps you decipher all that bringing that data together and understanding where the biggest risks are, you know, tying it to where the financial gain is or where the, where the biggest downside would be. Because the problem is we can't focus on everything all at once. Like boiling the ocean is not an effective strategy to fight this. And so we have to pick the things that are gonna cause the most pain and we understand how to fix it so we are investing our, you know, our money properly. So it's more of a, it's not the, the one thing, but it helps us decide what that thing is to invest in. And, and I would add one perspective. I always tell companies, and I, I try to do this when I was in government, the single greatest investment, if I don't have enough time, I don't have enough money, resilience, resilience, resilience. What increases my ability to withstand and deal with a successful penetration? Historically, we viewed cyber, and Casey mentioned this, historically, we viewed cybersecurity largely through the prism of cyber defense. Well, make the walls thicker, make the walls higher, build a bigger moat, a deeper moat. Is a guy who also not only defended, but penetrated networks for a living. One of my takeaways has been, if an adversary is focused and is willing to put enough time and energy into it, there's a high probability they are gonna gain access. If that in fact is true, then while investments in cyber defense are important, the other component we need to think more about with respect to cybersecurity is cyber resilience. Because again, having both focus on keeping people out and then the way you have to act and respond once an adversary is in the structure and you try to, it is 180 out. It is totally different. 
different set of priorities, different organizational imperatives, different approach. And so I always tell people, look, if, if you're in doubt, ask yourself, does this increase my cyber resilience, my ability to respond successfully to a successful penetration? Let me ask a question here. I know that the US Air Force for a while talked about a day without space or a day without cyber. I know of a major US utility that has still a day without cyber. Employees aren't even allowed to use their cell phones. Is that an effective way of communicating with employees? Does that help make a company more resilient? I mean, I look, the, the reality is we, we talk about how, first of all, we talk about how vulnerable we, we are, and this may sound like it is going to go against what I just said. But one of the things that strikes me is so far, like on wood, the virtual world has proven more resilient than the physical world. Think about the damage from a major storm, earthquake, hurricane, typhoon. Recovery is generally weeks, months, years. Think about the greatest cyber events that we have had are arguably not Petya, June 2017. There's a handful of others. Impact was hours, days, and only in a couple cases, weeks. Knock on wood. So far, and you saw this with COVID, the, the virtual world has been able to pivot much faster than the physical world. So as we're thinking about, well, should part of your resiliency strategy be, can you show your ability to operate without I think that's a component of it. Rather though, what I, what I try to tell companies is, because we did this in the military all the time. Well, I can remember during the height of the Cold War, literally my boss would walk in on my first ship and I was responsible for running the part of the ship, all the weapon systems, all the computers, all the radars, all the displays. It was the dark room where we fought the ship, all of our weapon systems. And I was responsible for that for my first job. And my boss would walk in and he would point to something and he would say, you just lost that. What are you going to do? And I'm going to give you the following mission. What are you going to do? Um, it goes to a little bit about tabletops and simulations. Rather than just shut everything down, another thing I like to do is, okay, so what's the alternative? How would you act without this? How would you attempt to replicate it via other means? For example, So if you lost your networks, what's the role of cell phones? Do you have a cell phone tree for your company? If you actually lost your network, Another thing, and then I'll shut up. Boy, this happened to me the first time we had the Iranians when I was in the Navy as a three-star. We get Iranians got into one of our networks and we're coordinating how we're going to drive them out. And I had told the team, we have to assume the adversary is in, still inside the network, guys, which means they are reading all of our traffic. So do not communicate our strategy on this network. I had one individual who decided he was going to, he was hurting for speed. And he lit it up, literally ended up sending a message to somebody else about, here's the operation we're going to execute on Saturday at 12 o'clock Eastern time. <laughs> and literally, we go through it. First report is the operation worked. Literally 12 hours later, I get called at home in the middle of the night. Sir, they're back. And I thought to my, and I said, okay, let's figure out, it was a good strategy. Let's figure out what, what, why it didn't work. And sure enough, it was because we had literally given them in advance exactly what we were going to do. And so they played dead for 12 hours, hoping that we wouldn't catch them coming back. So. Who else has a question? Yes, sir.
Well, go ahead, Admiral. You're the special guest in town, and then we'll do Paul. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just say real quickly that it it certainly has the promise, and it's it's a similar discussion if you go back six or seven years and just talk about the cloud. If you do it the right way, if you find the right application and you implement it the right way, I think it shows great promise. I yeah, would, I would say one thing about it though, that the challenge with blockchain is that you need all parties to be on the same platform and to agree to a certain amount of standards. So yes, the custody and the chain of, of information is really powerful. Um, but this gets back to the cooperation and how do we bring people together to agree on that and the right platform and when to use it. So I think that's that's where we cha we're challenged. Yeah, I would agree with Casey. I, I tell you, the amount of times I would see an entity that, for example, would say, hey, we're using blockchain and, and, and encryption. And then when we actually got inside the network structure of going, well, you haven't uniformly applied this and there's actually a couple holes in the strategy and you know, I can actually work around that. So the, the, the uniformity of how you actually apply it is important. The only concern I have about blockchain is if we're not careful, a little bit like cloud, it leads you to a high level of confidence that may, that may result in you're taking more risk than you fully understand. Put another way, again, this is what I used to say to our lead, nation's leadership, if it's designed by man, it can be defeated by man. So don't assume that some technology is foolproof because um, I may have in my previous life, in fact, looked at how we might bypass blockchain technology to achieve that. <laughs> might have, might have. Might have. Yeah. Right. Might Let have. me ask one more question. Should we be worried about Pegasus, zero click, zero day? I mean, we're always going to be concerned about zero days, uh, no matter what, it, which zero day it is. Um, Log4j was a zero day, you know, that was pretty recent. And uh, we had a vendor that suddenly, but technology did a little too long and he got impacted. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just one of those things. You know, I had my guys working almost 24 seven until we got it addressed to a level where I was comfortable with. So. Uh, no matter what the zero day is, I think those are the ones that you've got to get on as soon as possible, immediately, especially if it's one that um, exploited in the wild, right? I mean, having a zero day and nobody's exploiting is one thing, but a zero day that's known exploits. Yeah, I think this, um, you bring up a very good point. Um, I'm always worried about all of those things, um, not necessarily by how we're going to react to it, but how our ecosystem of third party and fourth party vendors. So everything is again, so distributed out there that it only matters where your weakest link is and where you've distributed out your responsibilities, which everybody has here. And you don't, most people don't even know how much you've done that. Um, that's where we start to lose a lot of sleep. So. And I would only add, if you look at, look at CrowdStrike or Microsoft's data over the last three years, prior to the pandemic, Zero-day vulnerabilities were about 10% of uh, the total cyber penetration activity out there was as a result of exploitation of a zero-day. If you look at the data in the last 12 months, it's risen to about 20%, so it is rising. I, I will say it is still a minority. Now, that's in part because, quite frankly, nation-states criminals are so successful using commonly known vulnerabilities repeatedly that they don't have to use them. So you tend to save them um, in, in some ways. Um, 
So I, I tell people zero days are important, but like most things in cyber, there's no one single thing that's going to save us. So if you focus all your efforts on, hey, I, I'm going to stop all zero days, you're going, well, we still got a lot of vulnerabilities out there, guys, and we're still going to be exploited. So view it as an element of a strategy, not the end-all, be-all, as it were, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, isn't it something Questions. like 75% yes. of people of, of, of our, our um, breaches don't come from zero days. They're coming from social engineering where someone clicks on the button and puts their password out there. So you have to keep it in perspective. So if, if you look at the way the grid is constructed in the United States, um, it is both a positive and a negative from a cybersecurity perspective. The positive side, it is not a single integrated network. It is a series of very smaller networks that don't use necessarily a, a common series of control systems or operating software. So that's one good news. It, it's a little bit like the, like the voting system. One of the things that helps us in the voting side is the systems aren't all uniform and they're not centralized and controlled and remotely controlled. So that's one positive. So what I used to tell government when I would always get asked this in my testimony at times, is it possible to have significant localized impact? Yes. That duration likely to be some number of hours to days, unless you can get the use cyber as a tool to get to physical disruption of loss of critical parts. So you make turbines. So they literally try to walk across the generator floor <laughs> physically and literally they spin out of control. A little bit like maybe then the centrifuges, uh, but <laughs> with, with generators. Um, the, 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 the good news is it's hard to take down the Whole, again, my previous life, I may have been asked, hey, if you look at some of the companies, countries around the world, Mike, can we take down there, fill in the blank? Um, it's, it's hard to achieve. Now, in a local, like as a Chicagoan, the, the Chicago area network, which I'm a little familiar with having grown up there, again, I believe you can have some measure of localized effect, but the idea, hey, we're going to cut power east of the Mississippi, that in, a, in the network structure, it's hard. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. And it's hard to sustain the outage for weeks or days. Who else has a question? Yes, sir. So lots of discussion about is deterrence achievable in the cyber domain? And just try to really rephrase the question. And if I've gotten it wrong, you tell me. Is it possible to achieve deterrence? Man, I spent a ton of time in DOD and with the, the administrations I worked for on this about 
how do we go about doing this? There are many who argue, well, if you use the nuclear model, you can in fact deter it. I always argued the nuclear model is a lousy model, you guys. Number one, cyber is ubiquitous. It was a technology that was developed initially by governments, but it continues to be developed by not just governments, but the private sector and individuals. So it is broadly accessible down to an individual level. Nukes were developed by a nation state level, initially controlled by a really small number. Even now, a little over 70 years since July of 1945 at Trinity, where we actually exploded the first device, um, we have managed to retain probably a dozen nations or slightly less in the world in 70 years. That, that's pretty good. Now, that's a, a demonstration of the technology was largely controlled by the nation state to date. It hasn't jumped to the private sector and hasn't jumped to individual. It could, but it hasn't. Cyber is so different. I think the nuclear model is a poor example. If you read the Solaris report, which Congress commissioned, um, which was released now about two, two and a half years ago, it talks about, can you achieve deterrence by either making it harder to succeed, i.e., hey, why would I want to do this? Because I have a low probability of success, i.e., cyber resilience, cyber defense high, my ability to actually achieve the outcome low. Can you achieve deterrence by placing at risk something the actor might value? Or can you achieve deterrence by convincing the actor that even though they might succeed at a cyber level, the broader price they would pay as a society is so high, you just don't want to do it. And the cyber, the Solarium report talks about how you can use those three kinds of broad prisms as tools to achieve cyber. The important thing I always argued about cyber deterrence when we were trying to respond to the North Koreans in the aftermath of Sony, as we're trying to deal with the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians is number one, we need to look at deterrence much more broadly than cyber. Just because someone comes at us in cyber, the default should not be, so I have to come back at them in the exact same way. I go, look, we should play to the broader set of strengths we have, economic, political, political military, information. Look, we got a whole range of capabilities in the United States where we retain advantage compared to some of our adversaries, number one. Number two, you have to demonstrate capability and some willingness to use it. So for example, ISIS really is the first use of, of cyber, which we then expanded. We have publicly acknowledged that we have used cyber against the Russians. But in the discussions with the secretary and the president, one of the arguments I made at the time was, we need to think about beyond ISIS. I want the Russians. I want the Chinese. I want the North Koreans. I want the Iranians to know we have offensive capability and we are prepared to use it if we believe it is merited. I want them to step back and at least consider that we want to open ourselves up to American response. The, the initial pushback was, yeah, but Mike, we are so vulnerable, so vulnerable, we live in a glass house. And my comment was, in the world we live in today, everyone's house is glass. China is an export-based economic model. How do you think they run those cranes and container movements and rail switching that gets the product to the six largest port in China, ports to move them to Europe. They're all heavily automated industrial control systems and automated control systems. 
Those are potential targets, guys. They can, they're concerned about this just like we are. And last thing, um, in fact, I lost it one day with the National Security Advisor, where I have to admit, I'm thinking to myself, Mike, you gotta remember, you might be a four star, but in this audience, you are a really junior person. Um, and I said, I said, can you explain to me how we got into a situation where the Iranians, the North Koreans, the Chinese, and the Russians believe that cyber offers them lower risk? Where they view cyber as a way to achieve effect against the United States without triggering significant response? And yet every discussion we're having here is all about how cyber is this huge risk that we don't want to, we, we don't want to use. He said, this is crazy. We literally have tied ourselves in knots about this while these other four nations, to, and not to not just them, but criminals, for example, we need a totally different paradigm here, you guys. We have locked ourselves in incredibly ridiculous knots. So yeah, I think we can achieve some measure of it, but not the way we do in the nuclear world. And it's, the deterrence looks different in cyber to me. So, Brandon, I'll add one thing. So, you know, IR scholars have looked at, thought about cyber war for quite some time. And I think like the Admiral said, um, participation in the cyber realm, it's just too important for all actors. And so an all out cyber war that would destroy the battlefield or degrade it significantly is not in our interest. Right, so you know you're you're going to see things that are much less severe, I think, than that. In but nothing's going to destroy the battle. Other questions? Yes, sir. It's. Uh, I would say it can be a pro and a con. I mean, some of our tools take advantage of it and have given us greater capabilities. Um, but obviously, we there's a, a huge fear and risk of how it could be used against us as well. I think there's a, a great benefit to it, to depending on the actual task at hand. Um, there's a lot of things that security operations centers do on a day-to-day -day basis. So they have people doing tasks that could be automated so i think those if you're specific enough and think through the process to make sure that it makes sense to do it and it doesn't give you a risk per se then i think it's very valuable. yeah and i think so i think it's like any other technology there's good and bad but i think um getting back to the resiliency piece how quickly we can recover when you're trying to take all of these data streams and trying to isolate problems that's where some of the AI tools are helping us get there faster so we can recover faster, which is a critical skill. This gentleman right here. Yes, uh, supply chain management is a big part of national uh, area planning in, in one way or another. Uh, you mentioned Admiral Moon. Um, he's the operational board, and you also mentioned the uh, theft interplay uh, process. So number one, we need to achieve deeper understanding of our supply chains. That is hardware, software, and firmware. Traditionally, except for some, for example, in DOD, we paid great attention to supply chain associated with the nuclear piece because we were concerned about potential risks of nuclear command and control and our ability to execute nuclear strikes if directed by the president. Um, 
So we spent a lot of time focused on supply chain, but in a lot of other areas, we didn't pay much attention to it. We just went out and, hey, if the product meets the following performance standards and it does it at the desired price point, we're good to go. Let's buy this thing. We're now entering a time where I think, and it's not just unique to government. I would argue everybody's going to be dealing with this, where we start to say to ourselves, supply chain disruption can come in many forms but it all starts with a deep understanding of just what the nature of your supply chain is. Where is the material coming from? Where is your data? Who accesses it? Where do you store it? How do you store it? Who do you buy your material from? Who are their primary subcontractors? So for example, in DOD now, we've changed contract language where we now require our primary vendors to disclose that information to us so that we get some idea of the level of risk. The idea is we want to understand the risk that we're running. And in some areas, we don't care about it much. We think to ourselves, even if this was being used to potentially disrupt our access, hey, it's not something that's a core element of our mission execution ability. We could take disruption here. It's a low level of impact. Other areas we say to ourselves, hmm, boy, if we lost functionality here, it would, it would dramatically impact the ability of the department executed its mission, therefore, that's unacceptable risk. But I'm sure you guys are, are dealing with the same challenge. Other questions? Yes, sir. I'll go for it since I'm government <laughs> and state, and you mentioned state. So um, we actually have a requirement to to disclose and do notifications when there is a data breach. So there's no really out for us. Uh, not only that, but um, everybody needs to understand it's going to happen. Um, there's hundreds and thousands of examples across the world where data breaches have happened to the biggest and baddest security firms and things of that nature. So to, to say that it's not going to happen to government or not to admit that it happened to government, I think is a mistake because everybody knows better already. So why go with <laughs> false pretenses? Why not just be honest about it, talk about what you're going to do about it so that you know, they, they get that comfort level that it's not going to happen again. Uh, anytime there's any type of activity that we see we go through a scenario and we really look at how could we prevent this from happening and look at our processes, better those processes so that it doesn't prevent it. That doesn't happen again. You mentioned it earlier about, you know, they keep hitting you over and over and over again with the same thing with different entities. You know, we don't follow that mentality because we always want to learn a lesson and we want to make sure that we are not caught with that same problem again. <laughs> In my experience, one of the one of the biggest things with um, public acknowledgement was one thing that we're always concerned about. Don't divulge the methodology and the specifics until you've got a defensive response in place. So, for example, we we would become aware of a vulnerability. We'd immediately go to the private sector and say, "Okay, here's this vulnerability." We, you guys need to come up with a patch. Your software, you need to come up with a patch. We'll hold off on saying anything publicly. We'll let you do the public announcement and we'll wait till after you've actually developed the fix and deployed it. Because one of the things we always found every time a significant vulnerability becomes public knowledge, 
the amount of actors that try to use this vulnerability to gain access just explodes. It is amazing that the, the amount of copycats, criminals and nation states who become aware of a vulnerability that's been publicly acknowledged and try to see if they can exploit it before the patches and the fixes are in place. Yeah, I think that's from a, from a, in the private sector, we don't always disclose up front, which is exactly that reason that we have to, um, because we're trying to contain. So there, you'll see some cryptic communications come out and be like, you know, we're having an outage, something's, and, and you get in much more trouble, you know, companies get in much more trouble um, if they don't eventually, you know, they, if they need to disclose. But I think it's hard because the public doesn't understand the balance that the leaders are having trying to balance the two pieces. At the end of the day, we're all in the business of trust. So transparency is really important and accuracy has to be part of it. And just, just one side point, um, Admiral Rogers talked a little bit about it at, at, his, at the lunch, but one thing that we haven't talked about is collaboration and sharing of information. I, I've been in this field for a long time and that's been one of the biggest changes in the past half dozen years or so, especially the last few years. Um, for example, a healthcare company, we're part of an organization called the Health ISAF, which the Department of Homeland Security stood up. It's a hub where if we discover some new vulnerability or a new threat we've never seen before, we can go to this hub and it gets spanned out to all of our peers and other organizations across healthcare. And I, I think, again, Admiral Rogers at lunch made the point that none of us by ourselves can do this even you know my company is a fortune 100 company and i'll be the first to say we can't do this by ourselves we've got to depend on relationships with homeland security fbi other big corporations the state um, the more we band together the greater our odds are and, and a lot of it goes back to the point of your question about transparency i'll echo i'll echo that as well because we have similar organizations where we have sharing analysis centers where all the states participate uh, with the Center for Internet Security. There's what's called the multi-state, multi-state sharing information security analysis. And we also work with CISA and DHS and FBI and the list goes on and on and on. So within our, our own organizations, we try to communicate and talk about intelligence and things that are happening. And then it's anonymized and shared to the other entity. So I don't necessarily have to know that this other state got hit with this particular variant, but if someone can share with me the indicators of compromise and things of that nature, or the vulnerability that was leveraged, then we can make sure that we're on we're on notice, right? So we can we can go ahead and start taking action. Um, not the same question as general public, um, and I do agree that you know sometimes you have to say we have a problem, but then eventually you do need to come and say, hey, we 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 had a security breach or whatever. You don't have to get into the details of what it was because the public doesn't even understand a lot of times what that even means. So there's no reason to share that. Professor Belikova. Back to the election day impact, you know, the audience and the and when immigrants in the country, you know, I have a farm, and I have a state and have we are in a very polarized society uh, as a global democracy more than the United States. Uh, we are talking about how you know we have so much data and not really one where there are much very 
process that is constantly more where we are with the state of the and able to our emotions. And that's why, you know, I'm surprised Russia and Iraq and Iran and North Korea and China can be this pressure, right? Because they are exposing the flag and the history and the data that is out there and the vulnerability that we have. And so my first is kind of the phone call that <laughs> the big, the big question. If I can answer any of that, um, so I would say it is. So if we're thinking about the threats and whether or not um, Russia infiltrating information systems and stealing something is certainly one kind of threat, I, I do agree that this disinformation threat has become um, super compelling and important. Um, you know, you can recall that in 2015, the, um, the 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 Jade Helm 15 military exercise in Texas. Um, that uh, that became an issue, right? Um, the Russians uh, convinced Americans that this was an attempt by the Obama administration to uh, to launch martial law in Texas. And, and Governor Abbott actually sent um, the National Guard to monitor this exercise. And you can remember that in after Michael Brown was killed in 2014 or 15, you know there were protests that happened in Fulton, Missouri, and these were also triggered and um, and instigated um, and pushed by the Russians. Uh, as well, right? And so they put out lots of disinformation. That is, that there are going to be KKK groups that are marching down the street. They they uh, they they shot off images of um, uh, of burning crosses, of black kids being harmed. All of this, all of it was completely false. None of it was true, right? But it did exactly what it, what they wanted it to do, which was it polarized the public. It created a certain amount of chaos. Um, and it did so distrust among uh, among people within within those communities. Obviously, 2016 is exactly what happened. We're seeing it today as well, right? That is. So I don't think we have a good. It, it, this is. A, I think the admiral can take on this as well. I don't know if we have a good response to how we deal with disinformation campaigns, right? We've seen disinformation campaigns. There have been about 60 of them over the last five or six years. Most of them by the Russian government. Again, simply trying to um, to spread disinformation and create distrust of political leaders or the, or the political system. Um, but how we respond to that, I, I don't think we have a really good a good sense of. But one, I don't think we actually understand how people like respond to disinformation. 
like online, we don't really know, and we don't really know what their behavior, how it changes um, with uh, as disinformation spreads. So I think there's still lots of studies to go on to understand this process. I don't think we have a good answer right now. Other questions? We're reaching toward the end of the event. This has been remarkably productive. Yes, sir. Speak louder if you could. So what, what I'd really like to see from the private sector, and it really goes back to the supply chain, um, and I'd really like when things are being um, made in the industry when it comes to software and firmware and hardware that we know that they've been through a vetting process so that we know that they're stamped with some form of approval from somebody, <laughs> whether, you know, not calling out who that should be, but uh, that would, I think, would help me a lot um, because I don't have to go through this exercise every single time doing research on particular products. Um, I think another thing that's beneficial that's actually we're making a lot of progress in, uh, and that is around um, frameworks and people following the NIST frameworks and things of that nature. So we understand what they're doing. Also, there's the whole bed ramp certifications and all those other types of things that everybody's the industry is really embracing. So we know that they went through these these steps to actually secure the environments that we're using. When we're using a cloud service and they say they're fed rent moderate or fed rent high, makes me feel a lot better initially, right? And I'm good. I'm I'm feeling really good. I'm still gonna ask a lot of questions, but I'm not gonna ask as many questions as I would. And I definitely wouldn't have to validate as much. Same thing with like SOC 2 type 2 certifications. Anything of that nature, I, I think is very beneficial for me. So I would not that they're not doing it, I would just ask them to continue going down that path. I would say the same thing, speaking from private sector, um, we, we're on the right path in a lot of different ways, information sharing, uh, making uh, details available to us of threats and vulnerabilities, um, having something like a clearinghouse, you know, every, every electrical device you, you buy has that underwriters laboratories label on it. You know, Admiral Rogers talked about devices earlier. That that's really a huge concern in healthcare. We would love to have some sort of clearinghouse where every single time we didn't feel like we were kind of the lone voice in the wilderness trying to get a vendor to build something in a secure way um, and pooling the resources so it's done the right way one time and everybody can benefit from the same information. But so a lot of the same things that that you're hearing from the state perspective. I would echo from the private sector perspective. I will, um, those were all great. The one other thing I would add is investment in education of cybersecurity professionals. We need we we have a severe talent shortage in this space, and so partnering with us to make sure we have education programs that help train the next generation of cybersecurity warriors, so to speak, is something I'm pretty passionate about. Gentleman with the beard, way over there. Yeah. 
it's all part of it. Um, and uh, to the points that's been made a couple of times earlier, it, you can't boil the ocean. So it's picking your fights, understanding where your crown jewels are, where you really want to focus your attention. But you can't count 100% on keeping it out, you know, back to the, you know, the, the good old days of, of building a moat around your system and knowing that all the servers were right behind that door. Those good old days are gone. Um, and um, so it, it's a matter of uh, looking at all the sides of it, keeping it out, then how do you detect it quickly if it's in? How do you respond quickly? How do you recover quickly and get back to operations? You, you really have to look at all aspects of it. I'll go ahead and add to that. So I, I think it's, um, if you can afford to, um, then you should identify your types of data that you have that's most important to you. Uh, you do your business impact analysis to decide which applications, which systems are most important to you. Uh, you create your disaster recovery tiers accordingly to those, uh, but you also look at your backup strategy as part of that. Uh, your backup strategy for one application may be you know, it's online all the time and others may be it's using some type of air gap technology where, you know, the backups are only done at certain times turned on and turned off. Uh, I think if you can afford to do those types of things, uh -huh, then by all means do so. Um, do you necessarily have to? Maybe not, but then you're taking, you're, you are taking a, a risk if you don't. Um, we at the state definitely are <laughs> doing those types of things because uh, we, we think it's important enough to fix it up that elements that we have. Okay, we're in the lightning round now. Last question, go ahead. Okay. okay sure. Um, so it kind of seems to me like often um, officials trying to counter the influence of these disinformation campaigns are kind of stuck in a rock and hard place where, um, you know, a lot of people see, especially when it comes to stuff regarding social media that, you know, you're, you're treading a thin line without infringing upon people's civil liberties, you know, encouraging free public discourse while also trying to prevent the spread of these stories. So kind of how do you navigate rocky waters where you're, you're trying to, you know, make sure that this information that, that people are spreading is true, but also, you know, and there's also a big partisan divide on public I guess you can add the blue check mark, right? That Elon Musk does. <laughs> so that's the solution, right? Right now. Um, <laughs> so I was gonna say, you know, one of it is I do think that education is one way to help solve this problem, which is if if we can better understand what what disinformation looks like, if we can train our students to see this, to know that this is a bot, to know that this is false in some way, by, by the way it's transmitted, pushed, the network that it exists in, this at least can probably slow that process. The, the only thing I'd add is, I think there's an important resilience dimension to this problem set. My view is we're probably gonna have low probability of success ensuring that there is no inaccurate information or misattribution of individuals. But that's, if that's the strategy, it's probably got a low probability of success. I look at nations like Israel and how it's managed to create social resilience in the face of a terrorism challenge, for example. And I'll tell you exactly what I tell my own family. I said, so guys, we got to acknowledge we're living in a world where people use information to attempt to manipulate our viewpoints, our perceptions, and our actions. So as we're dealing with the information in the world around them, I always ask my family the following. Where did you get that piece of information? Was it a single source? Was it multiple sources? 
does it match what you have seen over time or is it something that's a bolt out of the blue that just seems so strange that i'm saying that doesn't mean you don't automatically disbelieve it but it does say you say to yourself i really need confirmation of this before i get all excited because it really doesn't match what i've seen historically or what i've seen by others and i also try to highlight look we got to acknowledge that sources have inherent biases the, the reality is our news and media now reflect our society it is inherently biased and now often picks a particular viewpoint. So I always ask, so are you accounting for the viewpoint of, of the messenger? Or are you getting wrapped around the axle about, well, I saw. I said, guys, we can't live in a world where the, the, the validation is, well, I saw this, so it must be true. We, we just can't function that way in this world. So just a thought. Thanks very much. If I could editorialize for a moment, it seems to me sometimes that long distance hate is the new national sport and everybody can play. Everybody can join a team. You don't even have to wear a jersey. You don't have to be in good shape. So I have people who either hate Trump or Pelosi or somebody, and they have no idea really who they're talking about, but they really enjoy that hate. There's an old um, author, Henry Adams, who wrote The Education of Henry Adams, a descendant of presidents, who said, all politics is, is the systematic organization of hatred. He wrote that in 1920. To my knowledge, it's not taught in political science departments, but perhaps it is. Last question? Maybe not. Yes. Um, so, so first of all, I think you, you hear a lot of individuals talking about the strategy of decoupling. I think it's got a low probability of success because we've created this hyper interconnected world. We built entire business and economic and national security models around it. Is it possible? Yes. But does it have a high probability of success? I doubt it. Now, if, if we have some measure of trauma that leads us to believe, hey, th that merits this kind of approach, maybe. Um, I, I think also we need to realize, look, we are building entire economic models on the premise of uninterrupted constant connectivity, data as a generator of knowledge, which is then applied to generate value, whether that be economic activity, increased national security, greater safety, et cetera. We built these models around this fundamental premise. So the idea that we're gonna walk away from that, could we do it? Yes, but I would say broadly as a society, I don't think we're there. I think we still think that broadly the benefits 
of this network structure, of this application of data, of this hyper interdependence, the benefits outweigh the negatives. But the, my last thought, the, the last three years show you that the world is a lot more vulnerable than we really realized. We thought we had almost perfect knowledge and we could ensure uninterrupted flow of people, knowledge, products, et cetera. And COVID shows us there's more single points of failure and there's more vulnerability than we truly understand. So this goes to supply chain and a broader setup. We got to spend some time understanding where those vulnerabilities are and then deciding what level of redundancy or resilience should we create to minimize that vulnerability? Can't do it everywhere, but I think in some areas, we do need to make some investments. Unfortunately, it's three o'clock. Our time is over. Let's thank the excellent panel. <laughs>